Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, everybody. It's Ben Jarofsky. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky Show. Yes, indeed. Uh, we have a guest in the studio, one of my favorite writers in the whole city of Chicago, and uh, wherever I am, wherever I have a microphone, this guest will be invited on that show. And so, guest, introduce yourself and do a mic check. Recite a poem. Just say anything that comes to your mind, whatever you want to say, what those nuns taught you back in high school. Anything you want to say. Go ahead. Oh, the pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Maureen O'Donnell. I write obituary stories for the Chicago Sun-Times about interesting Chicagoans, notable people, brushes with history and I've uh, been doing this for about 10 years and I th- feel like I've got one of the best jobs on the paper. I'm I think a frustrated history teacher. I learn history lessons every day and then try to put them in the newspaper for our readers and our our viewers. All right, that's Maureen. And let me just say this. Um, I'm not kidding, folks. Maureen O'Donnell is a sensational reporter, a sensational writer. She knows I send her all, whenever she writes an obit that I like, I send it to her and she's like, oh my God, he's trolling me again, sending no. me these obits. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's um, they're my favorite. And a lot of journalists feel the same way. Uh, these little stories, these little vignettes, these little insights into people's lives. Yeah. Some people who are not famous, you know, right. most of your people are not famous that right. you write about. Yeah, uh-huh. but they have they have some of the most incredible stories. Like Al Mampre, um, who I wrote about Sunday, was the last living medic from the Band of Brothers, Easy Company. Mm-hmm. And there's incredible heroism in his story, but a couple of interesting little tidbits. He, when he was four years old, One of his neighbors was a Civil War veteran. And that kind of blew my mind, you know, that we've got a guy at 97 who had two neighbors who were linked to the Civil War. And he became a medic. He always took care of people. Mm -hmm. But his daughter, Virginia, said even when he was four years old, he was taking care of people. When that Civil War vet would wander away because he had memory problems, little Al Mampre would say, the colonel's running away. The colonel's <laughs> running away. So he was taking care of people yeah. even at four years old. Yeah. Now, okay, so this is the, the obituary that ran uh, this Sunday. And I, I, I love this obituary because coincidentally, uh, Maureen, I've been reading Band of Brothers oh, by uh, okay. Stephen Ambrose, right. which uh, is the, the book that introduced America uh, to this group of GIs. A paratroopers yes. who fought so valiantly in World War II, yes. and then they made a TV show about it, which I've never seen. I just read the book. HBO, two thousand one. Yeah, that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever? I've never seen though. Have you seen the TV? I've show? only seen clips, but it's an incredible feat. Um, a sprawling cast, cat. Uh, you know, huge cast, incredible. Um, you know, investment of time and money. You know, around the around Europe. Yeah, well, this uh, so this is a story about, uh, this is a classic Maureen O'Donnell obituary 
Uh, and it's a story about Albert Mampri. Is that how he pronounces his name? Mampri. He's Mampri. Uh, Armenian. His parents were, um, one. his mother, I think, was from Baghdad, and I think his father was from Turkey. Uh, they were um, refugees from the uh, Armenian diaspora, and he. they're pretty sure at one point his last name had an I-A-N at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so by reading this story, you get the whole like a mini history of the Band of Brothers from mm-hmm. the, the D-Day launch, mm-hmm. uh, the invasion to take back uh, mm-hmm. Europe at Normandy and through mm-hmm. the Battle of the Bulge, etc. He was there the whole step of the way. Now, uh, how did you find your way to him? Uh, in this case, it was something that was sent to me. Um, the Army alerted me to his passing. and The I, Army? Yes. Yeah. The Army... Uh, um, media relations arm and i couldn't believe that we had a member of the band of brothers who was not only still alive but living in skokie mm-hmm. and um and he was very active up until his final months he was raising money and appearing at events to boost the spirits of first responders and uh, raise money for veterans and uh he was very well loved all around the chicago area because of his work with with first responders and veterans. And um, so I started looking into Al's background and he, um, now he missed D-Day. However, Mm -hmm. he was at Operation Market Garden. He was one of the, um, I think it was 35,000 paratroopers who parachuted into Europe to capture a series of bridges. Um, It became, I think it was one of the, it was uh, the brainchild of among other people, Field Marshal Montgomery from England. And parts of the operation, as I understand it, went very well. But as Cornelius Ryan put it in the movie and the book, A Bridge Too Far, mm-hmm. um, one bridge caused problems. But uh, Al, Al um, and landed in, uh, I believe it was the Netherlands, or I believe it was the Netherlands, and he, he actually got injured by one of our own men, you know, that landed on him. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the guy, the other soldier, the other paratrooper said, uh, uh, you know, where's the enemy? And Al said, you're standing <laughs> on him. <laughs> he had a great sense yeah. of humor, which endeared him to people. But he uh, also was at the Battle of the Bulge. He was assigned to uh, regimental headquarters mm-hmm. right across the plaza from General McAuliffe, who famously, when the Germans requested that he surrender, responded with one nerd, one word, nuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Al... Um, and ran out on the field and was shot twice. Uh, He saw uh, a rather tall, lanky lieutenant out there who I think was waving his helmet. And Al said it was just like catnip to the German snipers, you know, and they they were trying to finish off the job. And Al ran out on the field and said to the lieutenant, are you still alive? And the lieutenant said, yes, but I don't know why. And he said, well, I'll stay with you. And then Al got shot twice. Yeah. The Dutch people came out. They put the they grabbed the lieutenant's carbine, mowed down the nearby Germans, threw the, the lieutenant on a ladder, and then Al struggled to safety. But he survived. He had problems with his leg his whole life, but he survived. Right after Operation Market Garden, when he parachuted in, he's on a street. 
He hears German gunfire. He ducks into a doorway. And this was one of my, my favorite little anecdotes that he told. And he often said this. He's done many video interviews, many, many oral histories, like with the West Point Center for Oral History. And uh, he ducks into this doorway, and he never saw this woman, only her hand. An arm comes out, a woman's arm, and she's holding a spoon with cherries on it, feeding this American soldier in between the bullets. Yeah. He gobbles down the cherries. That was all she had yeah. to give to give the ally who had come to their rescue. And then when the gunfire stops, he races out. Decades later, he found out that this region was known for their cherries. Yeah. That's all she had to give him. But she gave it to him. But she gave it to the Yank. And, you know, reading this story on Sunday, uh, it reminded me what I now know, because I've been reading uh, Band of Brothers, mm-hmm is that World War II did not go as smoothly as many baby boomers, people of my generation thought, or maybe people think about it at all. Like, oh, the United States invaded in Normandy. Like a bridge too far. Yeah. Yeah. And then every step of the way from the moment the U.S. and the the Brits and the the Allied troops invaded Normandy to take back Europe Mm -hmm. from Hitler, uh, there were setbacks. Yes. And there were setbacks. Um, the the uh, Operation Market Garden was a setback. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out the way they planned it. And Eisenhower um, himself had to deal with some of the mistakes uh, that they made, the miscalculations mm-hmm. that they made. The Battle of the Bulge that you alluded to would be mm-hmm. a huge setback, a counter-invasion, mm-hmm. by, a counter-attack by uh, the, the Nazis mm-hmm. that uh, the Allied leaders didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to fight Maureen, every inch. Every inch. Yeah. Thousands of people died. Mm-hmm. You know, these little blips. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying, Maureen? Thousands yeah. of people died. And the story you tell is a man who was lucky to survive. Mm-hmm. I loved the fact that through his eyes, he made me feel like I was there. He talked about watching British soldiers taking a tea break. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't believe it. You know, he said the Americans were kind of independent and... Um, you know, mission-oriented and resourceful and kind of did their own thing. You know, they followed the chain of command, but they were also entrepreneurial. Yeah, that's what he said. And he watched these English soldiers uh, taking a tea break, and he said, (laughs) somebody said, what are you doing? And they said, time for tea, mate. Yeah. And then the Germans opened fire. Well, tea time was over. Yeah. But he couldn't believe that that, um, that was something important to them. Another time, he was in the vicinity of some Scottish guards, and he couldn't understand a word they were saying. He couldn't understand the Scottish burr. Mm-hmm. But, but he listened to them for a while, and then he chimed in in some gibberish that he thought sounded Scottish. And he said they took one look at him and said, that's right, Yang. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, loved, I just loved hearing these stories. Well, um, and the stories, uh, I'm always a big believer in reading the actual newspaper. Maureen knows that. I'm not a big internet reader. Uh, and the Sun-Times, whoever the editor is, did a great job. A, lot, a big spread in the Sunday uh, paper for this. Mm-hmm. Picture of Al Mampre in his army days. Mm-hmm. Uh, handsome young man in his yeah. army suit. Yeah. And then you have the older man, the vet. Big smile on yeah. his face. Uh, and then his the family portrait. Yes. Uh, and the story is spread out. You get the whole history. Paul Saltzman gave it a good spread. Yeah. Let's mm-hmm. give Saltzman a, a, a shout out mm-hmm. and a raise. Mm-hmm. All right. But uh, here's the part that it, Maureen O'Donnell story. Uh, excuse me. Maureen o- O'Donnell stories always have like a little. Well, not always, but there's a lot of times a sense of humor. There's like a little joke in there embedded mm-hmm. in there. And you close this one. I sent you a great mm-hmm. close line, mm-hmm. a closing line. Um, 
and uh, uh, he uh, he said he's called on for a speech, and this is uh, Al Mompre. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kept it short. Quote: Be good, do good. Mm-hmm. I do it all over again. He once told the Defense Department. But if they need me again at ninety-five years old, boy, we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Had a good and sense of humor. He this did. Guy. At one point, they captured a 17 year old German soldier, and I think it was the waning days of the war. And he started kind of kidding around with this kid. He said, Hey, let's switch uniforms. And he said, The German soldier spoke a little uh, English, and he was indignant. Was ist this? He said. And he said, um, Well, you know, we're, we're, you, you, I'll wear your uniform, yeah. and I'll be a POW, and they'll take me to America. And he said, we're heading to Germany. He said, so you take my uniform, you'll be heading home. And he said, the German soldier thought about it for a while and said, the hell with you, I want to go to America. <laughs> yeah, by the way, I loved your German accent that you did. You could have a future in, uh, you know, like uh, Sergeant Schultz imitation. That was a good bus it is. All right, now this, uh, we're going through some of the greatest hits of Marines for the last six months, because it's been six months since we've had a conversation. Mm-hmm. I love this one. This was a fascinating story. May 31st, it ran Sidney Bennett, karate mm-hmm. hero, who rescued Sun Times photographer from 1968 unrest, has died. Mm-hmm. This story was great on so many levels. I know. Uh, talk about it a little bit. Well, we found out about this story from one of his um, karate people. Mm-hmm. Um, Sidney Bennett was um, in 1968. He was a fifth degree black belt. I think he became a tenth degree black belt later on. But um, the Sun-Times had a photographer on the street named Mel Larson, and Mel was out covering the unrest of 1968. And 1968 was truly, as I think it was uh, the Smithsonian Magazine called it, a year that shattered America. Mm -hmm. Uh, Martin Luther King had had been assassinated. Um, uh, There was student unrest. There were anti-Vietnam protests. There was the... um, 1968 Democratic Convention. Um, there was uh, rumors that uh, hippies or yippies were going to be putting LSD in the water system in Chicago. It was a time of great division, and uh, not the least of which was among black and white people. And so Mel Larson, a white photographer, was near Cabrini Green, where he was going to photograph a store that had been reported looted. It was a store that had been the target of protests and criticism for not hiring enough African-American people and for alleged price gouging. So he's heading to the store, but um, according to a lot of bystanders, uh, he was waylaid by a group of about 50 African-American youths who um, began pummeling him. And I actually found a a witness, an eyewitness, uh, Eugene Crenshaw, who remembers it? And he said he came out of nowhere like Superman. Sidney Bennett. Sidney Bennett nowhere. came out of nowhere like Superman and protected Mel Larson from the crowd. And Larson, by the way, got very badly hurt. He was hospitalized for weeks. Um, but Bennett protected him, and um, he was honored by Mayor Daly, who not only gave him $250 and a city medal of merit, but what I think is the gold standard in Chicago. He offered him a job. <laughs> he said, "He said I'd like you to yeah. teach karate uh-huh. at the old fireman's gym yeah. at Navy Pier. And um, he not only uh, was recognized by Mayor Daly, the first, 
but he was commended by Black Belt Magazine, which called him the Pride of Chicago. Reader's Digest did a story on him called The Courage of Sid Bennett. Reader's Digest was a sort of a um, kind of like Google mm. in 1968. It was a, a roundup of all the big stories of the day. And, um, and you know, so this story had everything, and it had, you know, in 1968, this was a little before the rise of famous martial artists like Bruce Lee, karate was kind of an exotic thing yeah. to many people. And, you know, it was just something that you, you it was just becoming part of the parlance. Um, it became a fascination. There was a um, uh, an aftershave called high karate. Mm-hmm. And um, so Sidney, you know, he looked like a superstar. He looked like a movie star. And he, um, he seemed to embody you know, uh, the best of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this story works on many different levels because uh, there's that great... Uh, I mean, this man had a long life, did mm-hmm. a lot of things, Sidney Bennett. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, what do they call it? Sensei? Isn't that what they call it? Yes, a, he was a teacher. He was a teacher, yeah. the highest degree of yes. respect you can give to somebody who teaches yes. karate. Uh, but then there was this one moment uh, that made him a, a legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it, it, when you were came upon this story, the story of Sidney Bennett, did you know about it already? Was there a legend at the Sun-Times? No, no, didn't know anything about it. And the photographer Mel Larson died decades ago. And um, he he was somebody who had been commended and um, recognized for his great pictures of the Our Lady of Angels fire mm. that killed about 100 children in 1958. But um, Mel didn't live um, into old age. And... He, uh, but he he recovered from his injuries and continued to work at the Sun Times. But um, he died decades ago, and so no one here remembered him. Nobody here remembered the story. I went to the Sun Times archives, uh, clip archives, and looked up the old clips in they a warehouse. Still have clip archives. We still have clip archives in a warehouse and uh, in Addison. And I um, you had to schlep all the way out. To I Addison. schlepped to Addison, but it was worth it. We had envelopes just stuffed with inch upon inch of stories about Sid Bennett and um, he you know he he was somebody Secretary of State Jesse White who grew up near Cabrini knew him and said he he was legendary he said you know he was like a father figure to a lot of people he taught karate to a lot of kids and um, Secretary of White, um, Secretary of State Jesse White had a great quote, something like, you know, you wouldn't want to come up against him because he said, you'd come in last place. Yeah, no, he's, <laughs> and, he's in black belt and karate. And Wait, Jesse so, White played, um, you know, a lot of baseball. Yes, played for and, the Cubs minor league system. Right. And he said that he actually used some of the moves that Sidney Bennett, Bennett taught him um, when he'd come across racist people who he said, quote, didn't like my paint job. And he used some of the lessons that Sidney Bennett taught him to get out of bad situations. So how situations. did you find the story about the, the Mel Larson incident? It- uh, well, uh, uh, we actually found out from one of Sidney Bennett's um, karate people. He called us and said, or rather she called us and said, um, you, you know, this is a guy who saved a Sun-Times photographer in 1968. And you know, we asked around the newsroom. Nobody could remember him. Nobody remembers this story. Of course, it's 51 years ago. Yeah. And But by God, once we started looking up, you know, the clips, and I went to a suburban library and found the Reader's Digest article, this was a big story in 1968. Yeah, yeah. I can see why. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so there's these classic 
photos in the in the story of of Sidney Bennett, uh, Mayor Daley, and and then the other thing about uh, a uh, Maureen O'Donnell obituary, and this one in particular, you learn things about old Chicago, if mm-hmm. you will, Chicago that has passed, mm-hmm. and it's really. Odd for me to be say what I'm about to say, Maureen, but Cabrini Green uh, it did, no longer exists. And so I think it's hard for the Z generation, whatever they're called, uh, even millennials, mm-hmm. to realize the importance and the significance culturally of Cabrini Green, mm-hmm. this enormous um, high-rise complex right in the middle of the north side, mm-hmm. surrounded by well-to-do neighborhoods, the Gold Coast, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the historical and cultural significance of mm-hmm. this housing project that was eradicated, knocked down mm-hmm. like 15 years ago or whenever right. it was. Right. It was considered a warehouse. Um, it was a way to segregate African-American people. It started out, the um, Cabrini Green, like a lot of other housing projects, started out as a sort of, you know, um, temporary housing for people, you know, um, who were getting on their feet. And um, it was it opened up, I think, as a mixed race, very, um, you know, thriving, thriving um, uh, high rise, but eventually became um, segregated and considered kind of a warehouse for African-Americans. And I think so you had this sort of this story had sort of a clash between black and white, uh, between Cabrini Green and um, non Cabrini Green. And I think at a time when there was a lot of tumult and hatred and uh, uh, conflict, this this was a story that showed, you know, bridging the best of people and a way to bridge people and the best of intentions, the best instincts. You know, well, it, was a, it was a good news story in a year where there was not a lot of not good, a good news. news stories. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, there's also this bizarre twist in the story that mm-hmm. I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a shooting. Two police officers were shot at Cabrini Green. I think it happened about 1970. Mm-hmm. It was huge news it mm-hmm. was a very traumatic situation to i still white. remember their names rosado and severin very good yeah. yes mm-hmm. and here's i'm quoting from the obituary two years uh in in 1970 mr bennett's son also named sydney was among those charged in the sniper killings of two Chicago cops, mm-hmm. Sergeant James Severin and Officer Anthony Rosado, mm-hmm. as they walked on a Cabrini Green baseball field. Mr. Bennett said his son's alibi was ironclad and that a statement from the teens was forced. Quote, the charge, oh no, there's no quote, the charges against his son were later dropped. Mm-hmm. How did you find your way to that? It was just the, the clip. clip just there. clip search, you know, just keep going, keep going, you know, just... Um, you know, let's go back a few years further. Um, okay, now I've got 1968. Let's move. Let's move two years into the future to 1970. And I had to read that clip a few times because I, I you know, the name was the same. And then I realized it was it was one of his sons. Um, and yeah, so the the family was part of uh, a couple of very very uh, big stories. Yeah, yeah. I remember when um, the young man who eventually went to a prison for that turned himself into, I don't know if you remember, this is a story within a story, Jesse Jackson. Oh, Because he yeah. was afraid that the police, yeah. the retaliation was such a bitter uh, shooting. It just mm, caused mm-hmm. such rancor in the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Sidney Bennett, uh, karate hero who rescued sometimes photographer, great Maureen O'Donnell story, May 31st, 2019. Okay, 
I told you, Maureen, you, you got to talk about this one. Yeah. Uh, Which one? <laughs> this is Charles Barksdale. Oh, yeah. I am not going to do my Dell's imitation. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Stay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I love the Dell's oh, so much. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, the boomers. Are, I mean, the uh, millennials are like, who are the Dell's? Mm-hmm. Ah, they were an old group. Forget mm-hmm. it. You don't need to know them. But Charles Barksdale uh, died. He was the bass singer. He was the guy with that deep voice. Right. right? Right. And the Dells, you know, the Dells achievement was incredible. They had, uh, when they were uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, they were recognized for a sound that was called hypnotic. They were, they had, this This amazes me, 46 R&B hits from 1956 to 1992. Wow. Their staying power was incredible. And Charles Barksdale, the deep voice singer. Yeah. Um, uh, the Dell's, uh, I think, business manager, road road man, road trip manager, said he had very good executive skills, very good executive function. He figured out what was coming in, what money was going out, and because he had such good management skills, the Dell's really didn't have to have day jobs. They toured constantly. Mm-hmm. They were in England. They were in Japan. You know, they didn't have to work at the Jewel Food Store to make ends meet and then just sing on the weekends this was their gig for decade after decade after decade and they influenced the stylistics the temptations the miracles boys to men jagged edge they um they were the inspiration for robert townsend's movie the five heartbeats Mm -hmm. yeah and uh i I used to hear them on the radio. You quote Richard Steele in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dells were based on their harmony and the way the songs were constructed. You couldn't really copy them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a distinct style and uh, very influential. Now, how'd you find your way to this obituary? Uh, one of my coworkers alerted me. She saw it on Facebook, and I started looking into it. And the re- you know, it, the interesting thing to me was these guys were really global stars, but they really never left Harvey. Yeah. You know, they they met in high school, and they all stayed friends. Uh, there wasn't a lot of rancor or division in the group. And they, when uh, Mr. Barksdale died, he was still living in the Harvey area, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, he was extremely versatile. In addition to his business skills, he told Richard Steele on WBEZ, I'm a needs singer. He said, whatever they need. <laughs> he would yeah. fill in the notes. Well, he had that uh, that booing voice. And mm-hmm. uh, what's that? Oh, what a night. I don't know if you know that song. Oh, what? Anyway, mm-hmm. I can I hear it. And, and I feel this impulse to want to uh, make the sound that I hear. But there's like this divorce, uh, Maureen, between uh, what I hear and what I want trying to say. They were, they were, they were such compelling singers and um, so powerful. And I found this great, um, I think it was um, YouTube or Twitter, but there's these two kids, um, young kids, um, look like teenagers now, who kind of act out a scene from the Five Heartbeats, mm-hmm. where two of the singers are trying to outsing each other and it's a duel you know and they um no auto-tune those guys could sing you know yeah Mm -hmm. uh here we go and uh lou 
Auslander mm-hmm. dies. Westminster. I mean, I read every single one of these obituaries. Most of these run on a Sunday, I want to say. Mm-hmm. The Sunday obituary. They give you a lot of space. Yeah. Really, uh, a lot of real estate on Sundays. A lot of real estate on Sunday. <laughs> I always tell people, man, read the paper. Don't read on the internet. But you, Hey, you I'm, full... a, I'm okay with reading on the internet. No, you know? I know. I know. You're like, man, uh, I want them to read me, okay? Stop with the paper thing, okay? All right? Uh, mm-hmm. Ixnay on April pay. Uh, but anyway, uh, Lou Auslander dies. Westminster Best. Justin Joe mm-hmm. show judge ran Chicago IKC dog show. Mm-hmm. What's that all about? Well, he, he's International a, Kennel Club. Yeah. He's a man who um, grows up on the north side, child of immigrants again. Mm-hmm. Um, his mom sells, mom is from Poland. She sells draperies. His dad is from Romania. He's a cab driver. Lou does very well. He co-founds a construction company, Alpine Construction. But he loves dogs, loves dogs, starts breeding Whippets, miniature schnauzers, and he gets involved in the dog show world. And he's so well thought of for his judging skills. You know, he's so neutral and trusted and respected that he gets asked to uh, select the winner of Best in Show at, what, at what's considered the Academy Awards of mm-hmm. dog shows, the Westminster Kennel Show. Yeah. So in 1987, he picks the Best in Show. He has to look at seven categories, herding, sporting, working, <laughs> hounds, terriers, <laughs> yeah. toys. And um, he picks a German Shepherd. And lo and behold, it is the first ever German Shepherd to win Best in Show. This is international news in the dog world yeah. <laughs> and and everybody agreed it was the most gorgeous uh most beautiful represent, representation of his breed um and he he owns the international kennel club and then that ran its own dog shows here uh, in chicago often at mccormick place and a typical show had ten thousand doggy uh-huh. attendees i said you know he had 10,000 attendees with 40,000 paws uh, at his shows. No, that was the lead, folks. She's got a million of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Rodney Dangerfield when you read the morning. Thank you very much. I'll Lou be here all said, week. Yeah, he she said, tipped the waitress. He said, um, you know, and he was also someone, though, who took a stand. You know, when there were, like, yeah. um, efforts to ban certain breeds mm-hmm. by, uh, you know, uh, lawmakers or by insurance companies, he said, punish the deed, not the breed. Yeah, mm-hmm. punish the uh, breed, not the deed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway. And um, the deed, not the breed. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the, but like I said, the, the opening line is funny. There's a joke in the opening line. By the way, did you ever see the movie Best in Show? I loved it. Isn't that a I loved great all movie? of Christopher Guest's movies. Yeah. yeah. Best in Show, I think, is the best of the best. A yeah. uh, best of all those, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Spinal Tap, but that this is this is a good one too. Best yeah. in Show, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, now uh, this. All right, one, let's turn it up to eleven. Um, this one here is. Uh, I know the guy. I, I don't know how many times. That, it's not that. Chris Chandler? Yeah, Chris Chandler. Mm. Uh, Chris Chandler, crusading writer, Mayor Harold Washington aide, has died at 80. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Chandler. Wow, what a life he had. Talk mm-hmm. about it a little bit. Well, Chris was, um, he rose to be deputy press secretary for Mayor Washington. His dad, Reverend Edgar Chandler, was a director of refugee resettlement for the World Council of Churches mm-hmm. right after World War II. Can you imagine yeah. the displaced persons camps? Um, his father helped resettle tens of thousands of people around the world. Um, Chris 
enters journalism. He, he grows up all, all over the world because of his father's work. He uh, worked for the Sun-Times. He took a leave of absence to do press for Bobby Kennedy mm-hmm. um, during his presidential bid. Um, he uh, helped start the Chicago Journalism Review, the Chicago Free Press, the Daily Planet. I think out of frustration, he felt like the daily newspapers weren't telling enough about what was really going on on the streets. Um, you know, he early pioneer in 1974, he co-wrote a book with a flight attendant called Sex Objects in the Sky. Yeah. Can you imagine yeah. 1974 back when the airlines had uh, ad campaigns called We Really Move Our Tail for You? Um, he won an Emmy at WBBM-TV for a piece he did on the 68 Democratic Convention. And um, he truly believed in Mayor Washington and um, breaking the power hole, the, the power of the machine. And the night that um, it looked like Mayor Washington had won, it was Chris Chandler who came out and told the assembled media from around the world that Mayor Washington didn't, didn't want to rush to claim victory because I think he said it would be ungentlemanly. Um, because he was uh, he was ousting our first female mayor, uh-huh. Jane Byrne. And um, at the end of his life, he was still a crusader. He thought rideshare companies were a bad thing. He was leading anti-rideshare efforts among cab drivers. He actually drove a cab for a while. Yeah. And he published a cab industry newsletter. Yeah, the mm-hmm. guy is a really... Uh, I, I intersected him, with him uh, at that very that stage when he was working for Harold Washington mm-hmm. and I was a young writer here just moved to town and uh, he would be the guy I would deal with mm-hmm. uh, and it was one of these things where out of curiosity uh, Maureen I sort of looked into the background of this guy mm-hmm. who was that I was having to get quotes from and I was like wow my god this guy was yeah. like a hippie crusading yes uh, journalist grew up in Switzerland yeah that was mm-hmm. a, yeah the, and, and the interesting varied thing the whole life experience he brought to him yeah came from a, obviously a well-to-do uh, background his father was an early ally of Dr. Martin Luther King yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so this is a life that uh, it's god I hate to say it but I'm a sign of getting old is when I know the people that you write about <laughs> You know what I mean? I don't want to think about that too much. Um, and uh, our, speaking of which, I have to give a shout out to this one. I, of all the ones that you wrote this year, um, I, I knew this gentleman too. Many years ago, I was a copy boy at the uh, Daily News in another existence. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a reporter there named Harlan Drake. Oh, a great guy. Yeah. yeah. And you probably knew him when he went to the Bright One. When he went I the did. Sun yeah. Yeah. Uh, he just died at 90. And uh, there, there's nothing I really want to mention about this other than the guy had the messiest desk I had ever seen. I don't know if you were aware of this. Oh, it like, was a, it was a hazmat <laughs> site. <laughs> the dude, man, I still remember this. The copy boy, because one of my jobs was to put the newspapers. Yeah. Like when the papers came off, I'd put them on people's side. I, I didn't know where to put it. His yeah. desk, they used yeah. to call it Mount Drager. Yes. All the, yes. Was, yeah. And he'd be there smoking his pipe back when you could smoke in the newsroom. Yeah. What a he, character. You know, Tom Tom Frisbee, our uh, editorial page writer, said once that the mark of Harlan's influence was not just the stories he did, but how he touched all the other stories in the paper, because so many of us would go to him. Mm-hmm. Harlan, do you think my lead is right? Yeah. Harlan, is this fair? You know, am I am, am I you know am I soft peddling this? Is this something that I should state more strongly? And he had unerring judgment and a real belief in protecting, you know, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. Yeah, and yeah, um, he was he was kind of the 
the editor behind the scenes? Well, you know, when I was as a copy boy, I was afraid and intimidated to say anything to anybody <laughs> except for other copy copy boys. So I can't say I ever, ever had an interchange with them. Yeah. Uh, Were they all boys in those days? Uh, no. With everybody was called. I guess you could call them copy girl, but there was Belinda was her name. I don't yeah. know if she was. Do you remember Belinda? No, but so there was there yeah, was a girl. There was. Okay. Uh, I'm now going to re- reveal a secret. <clears throat> Uh, this is a secret, so nobody, don't tell anybody I told you this. <laughs> One of my fellow copy boys is now a big time editor at the Chicago Sun-Times. Who could it be? Pretend trivia points. Who is that editor? Scott Fornick. Look at the brain on Brad. Yes. Scott has got a library in his head. He's amazing. The guy's a freaking genius. And I remember when he showed up, he was from Kennedy High School on the south side of Chicago. And Mm -hmm. it's skinny as all hell. And uh, I remember the day he walked in. Mm Because I I was a veteran by then. I'd been working there for a month. Okay, Maureen? (laughs) So I knew the ropes. Uh, Final obit before I let you go. Rose Akabi and uh, Maureen O'Donnell uh, story is also a history lesson. Mm. And this talks about a very shameful chapter in United States history, right. the internment of Japanese Americans. Right. Rose, Rose Okabe grew up in Seattle. She was born there. Her parents had been in Seattle for 40 years, um, but restrictive immigration policies at the time directed at Asian Americans meant they never became citizens. So World War II breaks out. And of course, um, the President Roosevelt signs the um, document that permits the internment of Japanese citizens, and it affects mainly people on the West Coast. And she and her husband to be volunteered to go to Tule Lake in the des- uh, Tule Lake internment camp mm-hmm. in the in the deserts of the West yeah. because they wanted to stay together. And they got married in camp. Their honeymoon, they used to say, was a ride in a car by the barbed wire fence. Yeah. And her husband. For you movie buffs out there, her husband is believed to have roomed with a famed, famed painter named Jimmy Miracatani. He was very famous for his paintings of cats, and it became a fascinating documentary called The Cats of Miracatani. And um, they settled in Wrigleyville after the war, like a lot of Japanese Americans. Uh, The factory work in Chicago drew them. And the pop, the Japanese population around Wrigleyville went from hundreds before the war to 20,000 mm. after the war. You know, that's why we have the Nisei Lounge there. It was a place where people could go out for a drink and not be hassled by um, any racist people, um, any people who were still fighting the war after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and fif- it took 50 years. But in the 1990s, she went on a family reunion in Utah where her son took relatives to tour the Topaz camp, Topaz Relocation Center, a different camp. But there she and her sister finally started to cry 50 years later. And they said, people need to know what happened to us so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did you find your way to this story? I just saw her death notice. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it said that she had been at Tule Lake, but I knew because of her name and her age that she probably had been interned. And one little tidbit that was fascinating to me, um, as I researched her, I uncovered a couple of first-person oral histories she did in the 40s and 50s that are now in the library at Berkeley, University of Berkeley. 
and I called her family and said, you know, I just wanted to ask you about, you know, is this the address they lived at? They talked about this in, in the interview. Her family had never seen this interview. So I was able to share with them these long stories about their experiences in Chicago after the war, and it filled in a lot of blanks in their family history. And it was, we were all so happy. Mm-hmm. That is Maureen O'Donnell. She does a service uh, for everybody when she writes these obituaries, the families as well. Sometimes it's just histories, the stories that people... The one thing I always say, I told you this the last time we did the interview, is that uh, I'm, there's good and bad in people's lives. Yes. And an obituary tends to emphasize the good things mm-hmm. that happen in people's lives. So, you know, we, <laughs> you're not going to have like the kid saying, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what she would get drunk on Wednesday and she was a real shrew. But, well, uh, I've done a few obits yeah, like, few that. like that. <laughs> uh, but this is it mostly accentuates, um, the good things, little parables, uh, that can help you get through life yourself, you know, little ironies that are in your stories that you tell. Um, I think you have to show the the bad and the good. There was a person I wrote about from the University of Chicago. She became um, a world-renowned uh, professor, I think, of clinical social, social work. And um, a family member told me that it had been a hard childhood. Her father had mental illness, and when he didn't take his medication, he would you know, he would abuse the kids. And, um, I think there were beatings and Mm. this little girl would stand up to him. And, but the, the family member said, please don't put that in there. And I said, I think that shows what she was made of even at seven or eight, you know, and your father had mental illness, Mm -hmm. you know, he, you know, this, this happened when he was off his medication. And I think we should put that in there because it tells people what she overcame. And the family member said, put it in. And I think it, I think it, it gave the whole story a richness and a truth and, and yes, maybe it was inspiring too, to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, uh, that uh, sometimes it is not a good idea just to bury stuff and to hold it secret. I'm with you 100% on that one. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that a lot of families like, don't put the bad stuff in there. I, I did a story, uh, an obituary on Floyd Saunders, a crusty bartender yeah. at uh, the Wrigleyville Tap. And, uh, you know, his, his favorite saying, if he was upset at a bar patron, was something like, what are you, a jackass? <laughs> now, how do you write his obituary without putting yeah. that in? No, you that know? just makes the man. Uh, that was a great obituary, too. That was another guy. I Well, I didn't really know him, but I, I knew who he was, and he was kind of a legendary character. He was somebody who, you know, it, nobody phased him. When Joe Strummer, then with The Clash... You know, the only rock band that matters, as they said, circa, mm, what would you say, 1980, 1979. And, um, you know, Joe Strummer walks into the Wrigleyville Tap with a reggae blaring boombox. And, uh, you know, Floyd Saunders, the bartender, he didn't care because it was time for Jeopardy. So he told (laughs) Strummer, turn down the reggae. And Strummer said, I'm sorry, mate. And he turned it down and they watched Jeopardy together. (laughs) Another time, another time, um, Pearl Jam came on the, the the jukebox, and Floyd Sanders said, "We don't need to hear this. Turn it off." And somebody in the back of the bar started laughing. Was Eddie, Eddie Vedder? Vedder from Pearl Jam? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no. And uh, I you have can't to... you can't smooth off the rough edges of yeah. someone like that. No. it wouldn't be right. And, and and yeah, it wouldn't do justice to anybody. You <laughs> yeah, know what I'm saying? and it yeah. would just definitely not do justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maureen O'Donnell is her name, and she is perhaps one of Chicago's finest writers. 
writers. Uh, she writes the obituaries for the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, thank you very much for coming in, Maureen. I will bring you in more frequently now that I am part of the Sun-Times family in my little corner here. Thank How you for that? having me. I always enjoy being here. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. That's Maureen O'Donnell. I'm Ben Jarofsky. That's it for this bonus hour. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.